Thank you. My name is Rebecca, and I am a marijuana addict. It is. 579 days that I haven't smoked marijuana. And I've had an interesting day today. I work at a high school, and we had a baccalaureate ceremony for our graduates today, and I was asked to speak. So this is the second time in one day that I'm speaking to an audience. Very interesting. I'm going to share with you my story. So a little bit about what my life was like, how I became an addict and my life as an addict, how I got sober and how I'm staying sober. So I was born in Tacoma, Washington. In 1974, I was the fourth of my mother's four children. She had two with her first husband and my brother and myself with her second. My mom was from a small rural town, South Georgia, and my father was from Richmond, Virginia. My father had mental illness on his side of the family. My mother had addiction on her side of the family. They both came from very challenging dreams in different ways. My father, my mother, and my father, hmm, my mom left her first husband for my dad. And, you know, she was kind of shocked the whole town. And she moved away with him with her first two kids. My father turned out to be a very domineering man. But I guess he was a good provider financially. He was in the military. He, we were stationed in lots of different places. We lived in a lot of different interesting, a lot of interesting places. I got to live in Key West, Florida. Um, I moved around a lot every year or so until we ended up in Kuwait in 1981. That was the first time I lived in one place a good period of time. My father was in the station there as a lieutenant colonel in the Army working with the Kuwait government with their air defense. When he retired from the U.S. Army, he was offered a job as a civilian in Kuwait. So we stayed in Kuwait for a total of six years. We got to travel a lot. Once my dad worked for the Kuwaiti government, he was making a lot of money. Got to travel around the world. You know, my life was exciting in a lot of ways. And we lived in a place where it was close to a war going on. There was terrorist activity. You know, at my school, we didn't have fire drills. We had bomb drills. We, my dad was very unpredictable and violent at times, extremely violent at times. It was kind of like you never really knew what to expect, and he could be fine one minute and then be exploding the next. And my mother just 
kind of cried while he was losing it. And the next day was, you know, telling us your father was right. I guess around the time I was 12, I really started to hate him. And, you know, I looked around and I just resented the environment that that we had to live in. And I guess it was around that time I started having, like, almost overnight, extremely severe OCD symptoms. It was, it was torture. I, I had, I did all, like, the typical rituals that you would see or hear about, maybe you have heard about. The hand walking, touching things another time, a certain number of times. I had to do lots of things a certain number of times. There was good words people would say. There's bad words that people would say. I was responsible for the safety of, of everyone around me. And if I didn't do my rituals correctly, then, you know, somebody's life would be lost and it would be my fault. You know, there would, a plane would fly over and I had to do my rituals or it might crash and it would be my fault. It was really very, very challenging time in my life. I'm not going to go into detail, but, you know, there was other molestations that happened to me and that further messed me up in the head. I was, I did have one thing I really loved, which was dance. And I had a dance instructor that I really, really loved. Her name was Andy Hicks, and she was really nice to me. And it was so nice to be out of my house and to be there. And um, it was very special. She was very special to me. In the summer of 87, we came back to the state for summer break. And while we were here, my dad called us and said that we wouldn't be going back to Kuwait. And it was devastating. And it was a really, really, really big blow, unexpected. You know, I was so excited to go to the States and then not be able to go back was was a shocker. So we moved to Dunwoody, Georgia, which I'm sure is a perfectly fine place. But in 1987, I hated it. And it got worse, though. I moved to Lawrenceville, Georgia um, at some point. But first in Dunwoody, I just couldn't. I just couldn't get acclimated. I had a really hard time. And I struggled. My dad came back from Kuwait, and he had lost his job there and pretty much had to start over. And he was really, really angry. And... You know, I was the one that didn't cooperate, so I got a lot of the brunt of his anger. And that's when I started, like, running away, stealing. I would steal from people. I had this lady, I used to let her dog out, and um, I would steal her cigarettes, and I would go in her, 
I would be nosy and go on her stuff. And I, um, and I really hated myself because she was so nice, but yet I was doing like, you know, this bad thing. And also that was during the time I smoked my first joint. My friend, uh, she was my age, I guess, 14. And we were riding, driving around her brother's truck. And in the ashtray, there was a bunch of roaches. I didn't know what roaches were until that day. And we started smoking the roaches. And I got super high. And I loved it. Like, I felt free. And I wasn't having obsessive compulsive thoughts. I was just felt really good. And I wanted it again. So that time it was hard. You know, I was a kid and it was hard to get. So let's see, move fast forwarding. There were some years of hell there. There was a really violent assault that happened to me during that time and after that I was just really struggling to function and I moved away I ran away to New York City and that was actually surprisingly a a reprieve for me I lived with my boyfriend and his his mom and sister in the projects in Brooklyn New York she was a crack addict. So we were pretty much on our own and hustling to eat. Uh, but I didn't have, like, my dad around. And I liked that. I went, I got, I went to this place called The Door in Manhattan in New York. And it was, it was for homeless kids. It was for runaways. And um, they fed us. They got me, they would give us medical attention if we needed it. They helped me get my GED. They helped me get a job. And, you know, I stopped doing a lot of, like, the bad things that I had been doing. And I can't say that I ended all my self-destructive behaviors, but it was it was a little better. Although my OCD did kind of get to, like, an dream I was washing my hands with alcohol I was like having it wasn't really paranoia but kind of thought and you know I was wiping my tongue with alcohol I mean it was very difficult painful I mean honestly next couple decades of my life were very painful. I had a child and I I went on to I just carry on. The reprieve that I had in New York when I came back to Georgia was gone. And I was just in back in self-destructive mode. Wanting to be a good mother to my kid. You know, I was still very young. I didn't even know how to really take care of myself. I didn't have any respect for myself. I was drinking. Well, I wasn't, I was just doing just a lot of things that weren't good for me and drinking heavily and smoking. So smoking started to increase then, but it was still like 
I'm still kind of dependent upon other people to get the weed for me. I knew that even then, when I was in my early 20s, I knew that I was using, so, you know, alcohol and marijuana in the wrong way. And that I was using it just to feel different, to feel better. And, you know, I still had an idea in my mind what an addict or alcoholic was. And I didn't think that, like, you know, you could be a marijuana addict because people said you couldn't. And my idea of an alcoholic at that time, you know, was not what I was. So, you know, I was miserable. I was depressed all the time. And I was actively trying to use alcohol and marijuana to feel better and to feel different. And I was just really in a, you know, a, a sick cycle of self-destructive behavior uh-huh. and hating myself and wanting to die and pushing through that, feeling a little better and starting the cycle all over again. I guess when I was, I don't know. I had another kid when my son was 16. I had another child. And I had a period of eight years of sobriety from marijuana and alcohol. And I didn't do a lot. I I got sober through AA. And I did have a sponsor. And I did work to sex. But I can't say I did a lot of, like, deep work. I don't know. Well, healing, a lot of healing didn't happen. But I did have sobriety and I did learn for the first time, what felt like the first time, to not just smoke my feelings away or drink them away. And I liked it. I liked it for a while. And then I stopped going to meetings after about eight years. And I got involved with somebody in an unhealthy relationship and immediately started smoking and drinking. And I was really right back at, almost back to like where I was, you know, eight years before. It felt like very quickly. I was, I knew that the alcohol was going to take me somewhere ugly fast. So I just smoked and I smoked and I smoked and I smoked a lot. At first it was okay, but after a while I was just smoking constantly. My life was pretty much about smoking. It really was just about smoking after a while, I don't know, a few months. And I was on my back court. Every couple hours smoking weed. I just had my routine and I tried to stick to it to control it. That went on for about three years. It was pretty miserable. And I lived in like this fantasy land in my head. I wasn't in touch with reality. The relationship that I was in, in my head when I smoked, 
it was one way and I believed it, or I wanted to believe it, that smoking constantly helped me stay in that sickness. During that time, I, although I was smoking, I did hook up with a therapist. For the first time, I really did do a lot of healing. He challenged me in a lot of ways, and I wanted to quit at one point. I just had to really ask myself, do I want to get better? And I did want to get better. But he didn't endorse the smoking, you know, but... It was, um, it was just, he kind of just accepted where I was at. Eventually, I was able to stop smoking, but I did it, well, I guess it was around COVID time, maybe, or even before COVID. I think I tried going back to AA, and it just wasn't getting it for me. Then I don't even remember how I went to an MA meeting, but I think it was during COVID and it must have been a Zoom meeting. And I was in and out of that and I was feeling pretty resentful towards the people there because they were so carefree and happy and I was misled by that to think that they're doing something that I was doing wrong. And it was just really frustrating. I guess I had this idea of if I stayed, then I needed to look like them and act like them and feel like them. And whatever whatever I thought that was. So I like I said, I just started to resent them. So I would go out and then I would smoke and smoke and smoke and smoke until I was just disgusted smoking when I didn't want to smoke. So then I came back and tried it again, go back out, tried it again. So that would go on for a while. And then finally, I can't remember what it was, but it was a slow unveiling within myself. Uh, maybe this is part of my process. You know, maybe this is what it looks like for me, you know. And maybe I don't know how to get sober by myself, you know. And maybe if I just give it a shot and just be where I'm at, just maybe. That's what I did. And something clicked inside my head. I was able to stay for a day, a couple days. It got hard. It got really hard. The first couple of weeks were, were rough, you know, but the meetings were. And by this time, I had transitioned to phone meetings, which I really, really liked. I'm an artist. 
And so like I have visuals that come to me and, you know, like I would call into the meeting and I would imagine WKRP in Cincinnati. And I would imagine their smiling faces. And that's who the chair people were for me. And it was kind of a lifeline. At that time, I heard a lot of messages about, you know, what addiction, marijuana addiction does to the, in the brain. You know, it really educated me. So, you know, I would, in those early first few days, there was a whole lot of craving. And I, you know, I had heard enough in the meeting that I could tell myself, it's a lie. It's a lie. I don't need it. I don't have to have it. It's just a lie. Like, just keep going. And I went to a whole lot of meetings. I also met another, I met this person I actually met in a Zoom meeting. And she was in Canada. She had like 90 days and I only had a few. And she was super gung-ho and very excited to be sober. And she was very excited about doing service work. And, you know, she was a lifeline, you know, because she was there when I needed her in those early days. And she would always remind me, go to another meeting. She would talk. She talked a lot. (laughs) And which was good because I could just, like, listen. And sometimes it annoyed me, but she had so much, like, good stuff to say. It just sustained me. And recently I actually thanked her because she got me through those early days. I got a sponsor. My first sponsor, I I worked the steps with her. And um, it kind of got to the point where it really wasn't working for me because she was extremely busy. And had two little kids, and oftentimes she couldn't meet. And then when we did meet, she would get interrupted, and it, you know, it just didn't work. So I now have a new sponsor, and we've been working together for a few weeks, and I'm back working the steps, and I'm really glad about that. But back to my early days, after I got through the first week or so, I kind of hit a cloud, pink cloud meaning like everything was feeling really good and I felt liberated and um, I was just really floating for a while and I was just like finally freedom that went on for a couple weeks and then I hit about 30 days and um, the craving an intense amount of like emotional pain hit me like a ton of bricks and it was on Thanksgiving day and I really thought I was going to smoke and I actually left. I was at my friend's house. He invited me for Thanksgiving and I was so irritated because when I got there, she wasn't even dressed and she had just put the turkey in the oven and I was like excited to at least go and eat and have a distraction. But when I got there, I was hungry because I hadn't eaten because I thought we were going to have Thanksgiving lunch but she had just put the turkey in the oven and I just like the resentment just everything hit me and I left her house gonna go find some weed and I went back to my house and paced around a bit 
I smoked a cigarette, which I quit the cigarettes too, but I was still smoking cigarettes in early sobriety. And it helped me because I smoked that cigarette and I was like, oh yeah. It reminded me. Because I didn't really like smoking cigarettes without weed. And I don't know, it just all came back to me. And I returned back to the house where the people were at, the Thanksgiving, the turkey in the oven. And I sat down and just kind of exhaled and uh, made it through that Thanksgiving without smoking. And I think that was the the biggest hurdle for me. Um, I had some, some rough since then, but mostly my life's gotten a lot better. Um, pretty quick too. That's one thing I noticed, you know, I mean, I'm still in recovery. I'm going to be in recovery the rest of my life. I still have a lot of healing left to do. I think that's for the rest of my life. Um, but I'm way better. And, um, I'm a high school teacher and the class that graduated today was I became a high school teacher when they started ninth grade. So we started high school together. (laughs) And before that, I was teaching younger kids. And I dropped out of high school after ninth grade. And, um, you know, like, I actually made it all the way through high school after all. And, um, you know, I wanted to be in... I wanted to be at school, public school, you know, for to be someone that wasn't there when I was in school. And um, (laughs) I think I'm a real, real person to the kids and the students. I try to be the person. That they would be proud of, you know, the person that, for them to look up to, you know, not perfect, kind of disorganized. My brain still gets really scattered, but, you know, I laugh, you laugh a lot. The kids, I respect them a lot. And a lot of them are weed heads. And I smell weed every day. And it doesn't bother me, honestly. At school, it doesn't bother me. I'm, like, kind of used to it. And I share with them that I don't smoke anymore and that it was a problem for me. And, you know, like, I don't think smoking weed is bad in in and of itself. For me, it is, you know, because I'm an addict. Um, And I try to tell the students, you know, like, if we did get to a place where that's all you're doing and it's affecting you from other things in life or you're doing it to feel a different way, you know, you might have a problem. Yeah. At least that's what my experience was. So, uh, yeah, I'm sober today, still actively working the steps. I'm on step three. I'm practicing 
letting go. And, um, you know, when at the times that I relapsed, I, I would, or see, I would relapse, I think, because I wanted a relief from myself. And, um, you know, and I would, I would feel so, if I wasn't smoking, I'd feel so anxious and tense and worried and hating myself. And then when I would smoke, I would just, it, it would be a release of all that temporarily. And the release, release got shorter and shorter. But I do remember thinking, Rebecca, why couldn't you see how good you're doing? You know, because you. So today, I still get there. And like this last week has been, you know, a time like that where I've been hard on myself and tense. And, ooh, my brain's been so chaotic on the inside. Thanks for letting me share. <laughs>